On this week's podcast, we're joined by Matt Curry from Love Honey to discuss how they've successfully encouraged users to step out of their comfort zone. This week's podcast is sponsored by A Full Story and Balsamic. Welcome to the Boag World Show, the podcast about all aspects of digital design, development and strategy. My name is Paul Boag and joining me on this week's show is Marcus Lillington. Hello, Marcus. Hello, Paul Boag. And how are you today? I think things are better, aren't they? They they are a little bit better. I'm in my home and uh, it is uh, chaotic still. It's still essentially a building site, but just by, you know... Yeah, I've, we've done one room, which is my is the study, the room that, that yeah. I work in, um, and it's still not complete. After the electrics aren't done, the skirting board's not on, and all the rest of it. But it really drives home what a difference a nice working environment makes. You know, for going from where I, you know, my office wasn't bad before, was it? You know, I had quite a lot mm. of space. You mm. you've seen it. But, you know, having, we've now, I've now got these big um, bifold doors and, you know, it's been a beautiful day and I've had them open and it just lifts my mood. It makes such a difference to me to have all that light and that space and it's just wonderful. So yeah. I'm very happy. But also, most of all, I'm very happy because um, I've got internet back. <laughs> um, it's been quite traumatic the last few days. <laughs> yes, you're like you didn't have an arm. I mean, an arm was missing or something like that. It's terrible, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, how reliant you are on it, you know. And 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 I mean, of course, we're really spoilt these days compared to what it used to be because you've got you know you've got 4G. You know, I, I, I'm using my mobile data and stuff, but you know, everything doesn't work quite right and is slightly more difficult. Talk about first world problems. It's unbelievable. Yeah, that's a, I think that is a genuine first world problem, though, because we're so used to it and so reliant on it now. If it's not working, it, it mm. affects our daily lives. We can't do our jobs, basically. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So how many, how many months have you been out of your house, Paul? I think it's been about eight months. Wow. I reckon I, something like that. I don't think I could do that because I, wa- I watched, you know, Grand Designs and uh. just think, nah, I could never do that. <laughs> well, to be honest, if I'd known what it was going to be like going in, I mean, I knew it was going to be tough. You know, these things mm. always are. But if I'd known quite how big it was, I don't think I would have done it. Um, although now it's done, I'm glad I did do it. Does that make sense? Totally, yes. You know? uh, it's um, a, dangerous, um, a dangerous place for me to go. But um, uh, I, it's the kind of thing women say, uh, once the, the, the memory of having a baby's gone, mm. they go, oh, I could have another one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And and to be honest, uh, you know, I'm a bit like you if I'm on, you know, I, losing my creature comforts and all the disruption doesn't really appeal to me. But it, my wife really wanted to do it and I'm, she was she made the right call. It's absolutely brilliant. But there's still so much to do. Have you seen any of the photographs I've posted on Twitter? I haven't. No, I, did, I, I went to go and have a look and then I got distracted by something. Yeah. Somebody mentioned it in the Slack channel. Oh, I'll go and have a look. But no, I will. There is, there's just our lounge at the moment is just boxes floor to ceiling it's just it's just horrendous and we just cleared some space and we're making progress and then ikea arrived and you know tripled the number of boxes in a single visit so all of that needs assembling but Ooh. you know it's fun i quite like assembling i can't ikea furniture oh, do you well yes. feel free to come over no chance no, yeah. <laughs> no I, do quite, I do quite like it. Uh, the most difficult thing I've ever done are their double wardrobes with mirror doors Ooh. that you have to hang the doors on the front of this thing. And it's, just, it's horrendous. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> so not me. Um, fortunately, I married an engineer, yeah. so you know she does things like that. You so just have to hold things, yeah, ex- exactly. So uh, yes, uh, another show and a show where I feel settled and prepared. And on the ball, and then immediately I've got to apologise for the quality of the interview. Because the, the, what we talk about is really good, but M- uh, Matt's audio, I didn't get right, did I? I messed it up. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a bit fuzzy. I've made him sound as best I possibly can. Um, yeah. Yeah, and he didn't record himself bad, Matt. Uh, well, I mean, to be honest, you know, 
it's, it's certainly listenable to, isn't it? Mm. And and what he said is it, one of my favourite interviews. We've got Matt Curry on the show, um, and I'll introduce Matt later. We won't get into too much now. But as I as I teased at the end of the last episode, this is possibly the weirdest and most bizarre discussion about user experience you will ever have. So so yep. prepare yourself, people. It's good, <laughs> very good. But before that, we've got the far more interesting Marcus's thought for the day. Yeah, my, my little thought uh, for today. Now, I'm going to talk a bit about proposals. Oh, right. and, I, and I had said to myself that I wouldn't cover proposals because I've done it so many times before. But I thought well, the, the, there was something came up in the, in the Bow World Slack channel about what software do you use? And it just got me thought, mm. thinking, thinking about proposals. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll take a slightly different tack from maybe the, how, the ones I've done in the past on the show. So, it, really just to say that, I, that, obviously I'm going to say this, but proposal documents are really important. Mm-hmm. Um, sure, you may have a lovely chat with someone, you know, about a piece of work they want, and it, that might even be in person, but that person might not be the final decision, decision maker. Um, for that person, their first impressions of you may be that document landing on their desk. Mm. Therefore, that document not only needs to answer the brief, it needs to be a representation of you and your brand. Mm-hmm. It, it needs to say, I don't know, minimal and efficient or rich and impactful or whatever it is that you are. <clears throat> so it, in essence, it needs to be designed with the same care that your website deliverable would be or whatever it is that you, you're, you know, you're tendering for, mm-hmm. in our case, websites. Um, and yeah, that seems like an obvious statement, but I've seen a few over the years and quite a lot of them aren't. Um, mm. very well designed and really it, what i think what it comes down to is just consistency because it's very easy if you're doing a word document or a pages document or something like that just to kind of randomly do stuff i'm going to make this bit bold and this bit italic and this bit green and that bit blue <clears throat> but you need to make sure that you'd have the same kind of level of consistency in your proposal document that you would have as i say if you're building something like a website your headings body text mm. bullets captions Quotes, image styling, placing, spacing, and all that kind of stuff should all be super consistent across the document. So that's design. Content-wise, I have said this before, You make the most important thing is you need to answer the brief. Mm-hmm. Um, not answer the aspects of the brief that you want to answer. Because I think that's uh, something that it, it's it's very easy to kind of look through a brief and go mm, that doesn't make sense that doesn't make sense so i'll just i'll ignore those two bits mm-hmm. so but if you disagree with something then you need to deal with it head on um though obviously you might i think i mentioned this in a previous uh previous episode a few a few episodes ago you if you do want to get deal with something head on and argue the point and suggest something different that might end up losing you the work so you've got to be beware of that um but don't Ignore it, I think is what I'm trying to say. Hmm. Uh, and the final point is don't get lazy because <laughs> um, writing proposals, they can be really quite in-depth, long documents where you've got tons and tons of stuff to cover. And if basically, if you put loads of effort into the first 80% of your document, don't, <laughs> don't rush the last 20%. Don't go, oh, that'll do with those last few bits. Because so nope. Normally, the last 20% is the pricing, and that's the bit they look most carefully at. <laughs> well, that's true, yeah. Actually, I tend to do the pricing very early on, because it kind of mm. guides everything else in the document. But it's those, it's those last... It's usually the bits that you don't want to deal with mm. that, that are your last 20%. So just make sure you put the same amount of effort into those that you did with all the rest of it. There's another aspect, I think, as well, when it comes to the content of... Uh, writing with some personality you know as well as the design should be reflecting who you are i think the content should as well um and and having a level of professionalism in the way that you write as well things like spelling mistakes and grammar and one that i did recently which is oh i've accidentally left the name of a client a previous client where i've copied and pasted it from one to another you know that kind of thing i'm which, taking those as, as givens paul oh are you the, <laughs> yeah. those are so basic that i'm still failing on but it's the halo effect isn't it that mm. this this idea that you know it, 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 they will look at something like, oh, the design's not particularly nice, and they're, or the, the copy isn't very well written, and they'll presume that what you produce in the project will be shoddy. So it all reflects on, doesn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. They're really important, basically. Bottom line. 
He's a very wise man, is our Marcus. <laughs> I, I, I'm very conscious, right, that this season, because you do more work than me, really, in this season, because you're doing the thought for the day and you've got to come up with a joke and I just interview people. We, we should rename it Marcus World. No, 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 that would just feel wrong. But all right. We, we can. <laughs> we certainly can't call it Lillington No, no. Even I can't say my surname. Do you know, it's so funny. Whenever I've got to do the transcription every week, and I use a service called Rev.com to do the transcription, and one of the things you can do is you can add in the speaker's names, right? So you can say who the speakers are, and it won't let me put your name in. It's too long. What? It won't let me put Marcus Lillington. I can. It That's won't, not it, that long a name. It's not I as know. long as my wife's name, Caroline Lillington. Oh my word! Yeah. <laughs> so no, apparently your name is too long. So there you go. That's ridiculous. So, I'm offended. I have, to, I have to go in and change it by hand afterwards. <laughs> but interestingly, actually, I received an email from Rev.com only this evening saying, "Hey, we notice you use the notes feature a lot." Would you mind jumping on a call and, and giving us some feedback about it? So I shall be giving them some feedback about it. <laughs> well, <okay. laughs> but, but isn't that great? Isn't that great that they're contacting their, their, you know, their customers and asking for feedback? That's what you, they should be doing. Good for them. Yes. Well done. Talking about companies that know how to get it. Oh, see, see nice Yay. transition there. You're such a uh, pro. I know, right? Um, <laughs> I, I just I got a lovely email from Balsamic as well today, who's one of the sponsors on our show. You know, when you get an email that starts off with, um, we just wanted to drop you a line to say how happy we are with everything you're doing, right? What comes next at that point, right? Mm. It inevitably goes, but here's a load of changes that we want, right? <laughs> Usually, yeah, it? yeah. Yes, fantastic job. Here's a list of 20 things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I got an email that started off exactly like that from Balsamic. And do you know what? It didn't. It was just glowing encouragement from beginning to end. That is so nice. You know, and it's really, it was really bizarre. Perhaps say, because I'm, you know, I'm doing this course with them at the mm. moment that um, I'm creating a masterclass that um, with their help. And I think they basically had been reading what I've been writing because I did this whole thing on appreciation and how important it is <laughs> to appreciate users so I think they were just just basically throwing it back at me. Uh, they're just so. saving up the, the follow-up email to, for tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, and by the way, now you mention it. You've got that, that lovely warm glow, Paul, now. Yeah. They're going <laughs> to slap me down tomorrow. I tell you, I need all the warm glows I can get at the moment. My life is so hectic. Anyway, oh, yeah. let's talk about balsamic. They're, they're, if you haven't come across balsamic, and uh, to be honest, I'm not convinced that you work in the digital field if you haven't come across balsamic, because um, they're one of the probably the most well-known wireframing tools out there and, and probably the easiest to use. In fact, I think they probably are the easiest to use there. It's, uh, it's designed to be easy, um, if not even easier than using pen and paper because it's all just drag and drop. You just, you know, drag, oh, I want a calendar widget, drag it in. You don't even need to draw it, you know? Um, so it's great for meetings where you want to visualize ideas in real time. It's great for selling ideas with minimal effort, which let's face it, you know, we all want to do. And it's so much, you know, a, a picture paints a thousand words and all that kind of bollocks. It's much easier to just show people what you want to do rather than try and describe it. And Balsamic makes it really quick and easy to do that. It's also really good for collaborating on a design and actively engaging stakeholders in the process. And of course, the more you engage a stakeholder in creating the design, if they feel that they've been involved in it some way, then they're going to be less likely to reject it. So I'd really encourage you to go check it out. You can find it at balsamic.cloud. Um, you can get a 30-day free trial. And if you then do decide you want to go on and, and use it, you know, on, a, on projects, etc. cetera, um, when you come to sign up, if you enter the code BOAGWORLD uh, alongside your billing information, you'll get, uh, get the first three months um, uh, for free. And that's on top of your 30-day free trial. So that's, you know, four months for nothing, which is always pretty good, isn't it? Okay, so that is uh, Balsamic. Right, let's let's talk about this this interview that I've probably hyped up um, out of all proportion. Yeah, it's not like so. <laughs> I'll tell Matt that. So uh, I'm really fascinated by. I, we've known Matt Curry for oh, 
a long, long time. We originally worked with him when he worked at a company called Wiltshire Farm Foods, which sold ready meals to old people. And then he made what can only be described as the most ridiculous career switch known to man. So he went from selling ready meals to old people to selling sex toys to middle-aged housewives. Uh, that's a huge sweeping generalization on that second part. Um, but, you know, so he went to, to, to uh, selling sex toys. And, of course, that's not the kind of thing that you normally hear about on a web design podcast. But I tell you, it is absolutely fascinating from a user experience point of view. The challenges associated with, um, you know, selling sex toys and particularly the way they position themselves, which is trying to sell sex toys to um, uh, people that have never bought them before. You know, so there's all this anxiety that goes alongside of it, all this unsure, you know, unsure, you know, this sense of risk, these questions that people have. Um, and, and I find it a really interesting subject. So, um, yeah, we got Matt on the show to talk about it. Um, I don't think there's anything too disturbing. I think once or twice he, he, uh, he mentions <laughs> particular campaigns. So if you are a little bit sensitive disposition, this may not be the best interview for you. Um, but it's not obscene by any means but maybe not safe to play on your speakers at work i don't know but you've been warned anyway okay so here's the interview with matt so matt thank you very much for um coming and joining us on on this season of the podcast i think probably the best place to to kick off is if you could tell us a little bit about your role and about love honey and and how you got involved with them and that kind of stuff Oh, crikey. Right. So I have been with Love Honey for nearly eight years now. Oh, is it really? Um, wow. <laughs> eight years. Oh, my Lord. Um, and uh, interestingly, um, Neil, who's one of the founders of Love Honey, heard me on the Boaz World podcast. Oh, really? How bizarre. Yes, he did all the way back in the day. Um and essentially, he stalked me online for about a year, saying, please come work for us, please come work for us. And of course, um, you would think that would be career suicide, uh, working for a sexual company. Um, but he slowly convinced me um, regarding the set of challenges that they face. Um, and that they were currently undergoing a rebrand. And that was very interesting to me in terms of how can you position a, com a company that you'd normally consider in quite a tawdry business yeah. to be quite um, uh, casual, essentially. The, the goal of Love Honey is to make buying sex toys as normal as buying a toaster from John Lewis. <laughs> that, that, is, that is what we aim for yeah. in terms of type design, in terms of the breadth of knowledge, in terms of the friendliness. Um, that this is this is an everyday purchase, and it should be an everyday purchase. And mm -hmm. You shouldn't feel seedy or tawdry um, in any way by buying these sorts of things. Um, and so, and so, yes, that was that was very um, very interesting to me in terms of in terms of my role here. <laughs> oh, it has evolved, Paul. It has evolved. Um, it doesn't surprise um, me that. <laughs> So nowadays, well, people say, ah, oh, you know, um, you, you sell sex toys for a living. And I said, well, theoretically, yes, but mostly I fill out spreadsheets and send emails <laughs> um, to, to people telling me to do stuff. So I am head of e-commerce. So head of e-commerce looks after um, all digital analytics for the business, all um, inbound digital channels, so your PPC, SEO, display, affiliates, lead gen, wherever you like um, and I feed into UX. So we have a, a separate UX department, which started up uh, early of last year. Oh. And so we tend to work very closely together in that um, Econ will formulate hypotheses. It will go over to UX for, for kind of wireframing out solutions to those hypotheses. We will then test them. So no one is marking their own work. Mm -hmm. um, present back the findings and any suggestions of reiterations, then the cycle continues. Um, 
so so it's quite a nice little workflow. Um, we also look after any form of MarTech. So any shiny thing that marketing wants to do that involves tracking someone to the nth degree, mm-hmm. so maybe, maybe not from May the 25th, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, generally involves me MacGyvering my way um, to try and figure out how on earth we're going to do it. Interesting. Yeah. So, so I mean... Let's, uh, there's so much in what you've just said that I wanted to dive into, but let's let's just take a step back a minute, right? Mm-hmm. So you said that when you joined Love Honey that Neil was going through a rebrand, right? Yeah. At that point, did they know that they wanted to position Love Honey in this very mainstream, accessible, non-CD way, or did that evolve through the process of rebranding? Well, Love Honey was always meant to position itself as as non-CD. Essentially, when when they founded the company back in 2005 um, or 2002, um, it was the sexual industry was very CD. It was Mm. essentially um, very sex-driven websites, largely aimed at men, pornographic imagery. It was not a pleasant place to shop. and so the fundamentals were already there. So, for example, we already did um, uh, instructional videos. Mm. And this is not what, what you expect an instructional video will be like. Um, essentially getting a proper presenter in um, to say, right, here is, here is this vibrator. This is showing that it's waterproof. This is how loud it is. Here is how the functions work. This is how you put the batteries in. Mm. Um, all the stuff. And, and essentially, the, we call it going the extra inch. Um, that, that little bit extra, that little bit extra effort yeah. in, in explaining these products to people. Most people have not touched a sex toy. Yeah. And so just showing them a little picture of something and a big add to basket button isn't going to work. And mm. so you have to explain these things to people. Mm-hmm. Most people, most people don't really understand the difference between the vibrator and the dildo, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. So you, you absolutely have to slow them down hold their hand and slowly take them through, right, this is the stuff you need to be thinking about here. I mean, the videos, the videos that I see, I've seen on your site are almost, they almost remind me of like tech demos, you know, like tech reviews. It's they got, are. Yeah, very much that um, kind of feel. Because it is, it is essentially stepping away from, from the product a little bit. Mm. Because, because, you know, we all know what these things are for and where you're going to put them, but they, they, they essentially are a consumer electronics company. Yeah. Ultimately. Yeah. So, so when I'm looking at inspiration for, for functions that we should be implementing, I don't, I don't look at sex websites. I don't look at lingerie websites. I tend to look at places like appliances online. Yeah. Or, or, or Amazon or, yeah. or anything where there is a level of technical detail that your common visitor will not know about and so will not know to be thinking about at that point of purchase. Uh, to immediately go off on tangent, right, uh, from my, my list of pre-prepared questions, which, <laughs> I, which I do all the time, it's very interesting to hear you talk there because you're talking about, you know, most people haven't, don't know the difference between a vibrator and a dildo and, and you know, they, they don't know anything about this product all the time. Now, you've worked love honey for eight years you know i know you a little bit from back in the day and and this is this must all be so natural to you now and you know you you're you know you took me around your office and you're surrounded by sex toys every day all day how do you as a company maintain that perspective of what it's like not to be a part of that world for for the product to feel absolutely alien to you and maybe slightly scary and a little bit strange and there'll be a lot of people that are listening to this right now thinking oh paul what a weird choice of a person to have on the show (laughs) you know Um, yeah no absolutely and it it is incredibly difficult to um you become for want of a better word, uh, desensitized mm. to sex toys very, very quickly. Mm. Um, and so, and so it is, I mean, you know, it, it is, I can't put myself in that mindset. Yeah. Um, all I can do is look at, uh, user research data mm. studies and see, um, we, 
we had a, a brilliant um, piece of work done last year by Jesmond Allen, mm-hmm. um, who did an entire um, experience map yeah. for, for newbies. So, so thinking about not just from when they came to the site, but, but way before they come to the site, mm-hmm. what kicks off the conversation with their partner, if there is yeah. a conversation at all, um, about buying a sex toy. And if there isn't the conversation, that then makes a completely different customer group. Yeah. Because that person is, is what we call an anxious gifter. Um, that is someone who, who wants to improve their sex life, thinks sex toys um, is a way of doing that, but is, uh, for some reason, afraid to ask their partner. So what they're going to do is buy it as a gift. Right. Um, and, and in that, there comes various psychological challenges in that they want to buy something good, so something, something quality, but they don't want to spend so much that it can't be laughed off later on yeah as a joke yeah 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 it's complex and Um, that's what but that's what makes it so interesting i mean that's why you know talking to you such a great thing because it's it's all the problems and challenges that any e-commerce manager faces but kind of magnified oh yeah so so even the thing about you know not being able to connect with how people feel everyone you know if if you sell insurance for a living you forget how a normal person feels about buying insurance so it's the same problems but just kind of magnified because of the semi-taboo nature of the product it's an emotive subject and the thing is if people for their first purchase if they buy the wrong thing that might be them out of the category for life yeah yeah completely dismiss it as oh i tried it once never again um and so and so we really have to make it work first time and make sure what they're buying is the right thing for them um and that, the difficult thing for us is that we stop so many of the damn things yeah. <laughs> you know we, we we sell uh in, in total we i think we have nine thousand different SKUs. um we sell 73 different types of bullets vibrator alone um <laughs> It's, there is, because we have, we have a core audience who will, who will buy frequently. Yeah. So, so we have to have the, the range for them, but also there is a massive issue of choice paralysis. If you're brand new to the site, you're brand new to the category. You, you don't know if you want a bullet or a, a rabbit or a wand. Or and even knowing what the difference is between them. Even knowing things. what the difference is. Yeah. Um, and so, and so how do you do that? How do you communicate to people that there are these different styles and these different facets of those products that you need to be thinking about? So now, how when do I do that? Where, how do you deal with choice paralysis? Well, well, you know, like I said that I look at um, a, a electronic sites yeah. uh, for inspiration. I, I was uh, in the market for an American fridge freezer a few years ago. Yeah. And if you go on appliances online, um, they have an American well, a fridge freezer finder. Right. It essentially says, right, what, what size do you want it to be? Do you want it to have like an ice maker? Um, you know, how much, you know, how much do you want to be freezer? How much do you want to be fridge? So on and so forth. Um, and you click the options and the little number whizzes down as well, but we've found six, few the six. Um, and so we built <laughs> the vibrator finder. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So if you, if, if you go to Lovehand, you'll see you'll see there's banners everywhere for it. The vibration finder, which actually it shows you in in iconography. So we don't actually show product yet, just in purely iconography. Here's the main six types of vibrator. How much do you want to spend in three different bands? Um, do you only want to see things that are like four stars and higher? Yeah. Do you want it to be powerful? Do you want it to be quiet? Do you want it to be remote control? Yeah. Click those things. Little number whizzes down, show me my six items. Brilliant. Um, yeah. And, and you don't get that sort of thing by looking at a lingerie shop or going to Summers or something like that. You, no. you have to consider these things in terms of, in, it's a bit nerdy, it's very nerdy, but you have to think of these things in terms of, right, these are products with attributes. Mm-hmm. And they're attributes that people don't know about. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. So, I mean, obviously really understanding your audience has been 
key to Love Honey's success to a large degree. I mean, because Love Honey's huge now, aren't you? I mean, yeah. you, are you the biggest sex toy retailer? Um, in the UK now, probably, yes. Um, worldwide, no. Um, we're probably number three, maybe number two in the US now. Right. Um, we're number one in Australia now. Crikey. Um, Love Honey is about 15 times the size it was when I started. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a big, it, it is a very different world. So, so going, going from tiny, tiny works fun food, um, to where I am now, there's no, there's no comparison. Mm. Mm. I mean, we, we've kind of got to the place. We used to, Lockney used to do a lot of things on gut feel. Um, we used to do, you know, was this fun or did this seem like a good idea? Um, we can't do that anymore. Yeah. There's, there's, there's millions at risk if we, if we make a bad decision. Um, and so now when I say I mostly fill out spreadsheets and send emails, that's because I'm working on strategy. Mm. And, and I'm working on metrics and the performance uh, measurement framework and, and all this stuff. That means I can't do the old style, oh, let's change this button another color and see what happens. <laughs> now, nowadays, everything has to be right. These are the objectives. This is the strategy of how we're going to achieve them. This mm-hmm. is how we're going to be measuring them. Um, it, this is the thing. So you think, you think Love Plane is a sexy, sexy business and it's 24 hour orgy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't think that, now, but now you've said it. Now that's all I've got in my head. It, it, essentially, unless if there weren't sex toys everywhere and on people's desks and constantly in view, we could be selling anything. We yeah. could be selling photocopies. Yeah. yeah. Because everyone's just got Excel open and are furiously working out formula. But at the same time, it's not like selling a photocopier because of the nature of the product and because of the the attitudes towards the product. That's what really makes it different is that that need to be incredibly sensitive to users' um, uh, objections. Because a lot of it, a lot of sales, isn't it, is objection handling, isn't it? Is why they might not go and buy whatever it is that you're selling um and you know and so i often use actually love honey when i'm talking about persuasive design because you have you know you've got videos on your site that say you know you i can see you sat down somewhere and listed all right what are all the things that might freak people out about this you know what's going to be on their credit card what's you know how's it the package going to arrive people people are worried that a giant pink box is going to turn up on their doorstep with the word dildo exactly Um, yeah and so, and so, yeah, you have to have that, that supportive content. Mm. Um, but the, the big thing is getting people to the product in the first place. People tend not to worry too much about um, what's going to be on their credit card bill and what the package is going to be, look like until after they've placed the order. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine and, and, that. And then they panic. <laughs> um, and, so, and so our, our biggest task is getting them to the product in the first place. Okay. You know, just to think, if you know the kind of the classic GA shopping tunnel stuff, yeah, yeah. Like you've got people landing, this percentage of people view the product, this percentage of people add it to your basket, this percentage of people check out, that sort of thing. Um, I can't give any stats away. No. But the percentage of people who actually view a product on Love Honey, it's not good. Right. It's not, it's not, you know, you, you'd think that 100% of people who visit Love Honey view a product really? and they do not. So what, what do you think happens there? I mean, you must have researched that kind of stuff. You know, if I, because, mm-hmm. because I imagine, you know, if I sit down and I get as far as typing lovehoney.co.uk in, I can understand there being apprehension. That's, that's, that's fine because if you, if you type in lovehoney.co.uk, you're, you're kind of aware of, um, you're aware of Love Honey. Right. You're aware of what we said. So, so you're coming with a level of propensity already. Ah, so it's people that are clicking on an ad or it's, a search it's engine. Typing, typing vibrators. Right. Google or typing sex toys in. People who type sex toys into Google are very interesting people to me. People who type, type sex toys into Google massively skew male. Right. Massively. Like 88% of all the people we see who have typed sex toys into Google are male. Yeah. So... Why do men 
end up leaning on such a generic term like just sex toys. Yeah. When women have vibrators, bullets, they they have this entire vocabulary right. of sex toys available to them. Men lack that vocabulary. That's I mean, fascinating. Men, men have heard of fleshlight-ish, maybe at a push. Yeah. But there is there is absolutely no common word for male sex toys or the variety of male sex toys. Mm. And mm. so if some if someone types sex toys into Google, what do I show them? Mm. Do I assume they're male? And then start showing them a bunch of random strokers and pumps and sleeves and all that jazz? Um, or, you know, what, what do you do? Because, because even, you even if they are male... They might not be looking for a toy for themselves. They might exactly. be looking, might yeah. Be yeah. Um, and so, and so, what do you do? You know, there's there's an idea that, you know, okay, well, then you stick two massive graphics in front of them, saying, "Well, are you a man or are you a woman?" Yeah. So, you know, not everyone's a man or a woman for a start. No. Um, and sex toys are for anatomy, not gender. Mm. So it's a minefield from then on, anyway. Mm. So, so what? What? Are, my next big idea. And I've started doing proof of concept. Do you remember Choose Your Own Adventure books? Yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, if you want to fight the dragon, turn to page 30. Um, can I get a man to the right category and subset of products by asking them just a series of narrative questions? Are you talking about doing this in some kind of chatbot format or? Well, look, I, I, I literally, there's a, there's a nice little, um, choose your own adventure building program called Twine. Yes. I in. Um, and, and yeah, and that, that sort of works as a proof of concept. And now we're looking at chatbots. Mm. So there's a, there's a, um, a third party service called Landbot. Mm-hmm. Um, that's quite nifty for this sort of thing. Mm. Um, and so we've, we've got two, they're currently on the site, experimental chatbots. Um, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. Uh, yeah, you can. Don't worry. So we, we, we have Vibebot and Wankbot. Um, for, for <laughs> depending on, depending on what you're trying to buy. Um, just to see if we can get people, because people don't want to pick up a phone generally to talk about these things. Certainly men aren't going to chat to their mates about this sort of thing. Mm. If we say, right, explicitly, this is a robot that you are talking to that's pre-programmed to get you in the right place. Yeah. Um, will that will that help people? I mean, okay. So this is this is fascinating. So in terms of user research, mm-hmm. what even that I imagine is quite challenging because people lie about their sex life. They lie. They don't openly talk about it a lot of the time. How do you how do you manage user research? How do you approach that? Um, well, fortunately for us, um, the the you know the eighteen to twenty five demographic mm-hmm. is much more open about talking about their sex life. Okay, than other demographics. So the stigma is slowly decreasing mm-hmm. um, uh, with younger audiences. Um, the way that we approach um, recruitment is by saying, right, we want to speak to people who have bought a sex toy in the last six months. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily from us, doesn't matter, doesn't matter who. Um, and then we can talk them through, right, because it's still, in, it will still be reasonably fresh in their minds. We can yeah. talk them through, right, what was the process that you went through in order to get to buying a sex toy? We don't want to know really which one you bought. Um, we just want to know what triggered the conversation? Yeah. Over what time did this did this happen? Was it multiple conversations? Did you decide to buy together? Because there's a lot of co-browsing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which one initiated it? What were your fears at the time? Um, what sort of budget did you have in mind at the beginning? Mm-hmm. And, and it's those sorts of questions that people, they don't actually mind answering because you're not asking them, well, what was it like? You know, you're just asking about how they how they felt at the time. They don't have to actually go into their sex life. Mm. They can just talk about, right, well, we had a conversation about it and we thought, well, we'd spend £30. And, and it's those sorts of questions mm-hmm. that are quite neutral. Yeah, but yeah. That's the goal for us. 
I mean, how valuable, because uh, the season, this season of the podcast is talking about culture as a whole. And, and it's, mm-hmm. it's obvious that from the top down, you've had a very clear leadership in terms of the kind of tone that you're adopting and the way that you're working. Um, but I'm also quite interested in terms of um, how the different parts of the organization kind of work together. So, you know, you've already talked about how you and, and the UX team work very closely together. What about you and the customer support people? Because I'm imagining you get lots of really valuable feedback from the people that are on the end of the phone the whole time. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, we do. Um, well, interestingly, customer care is not just one department. We have three customer care departments around the world. Ah, okay. Um, so we, we obviously have um, our office. Uh, we're, we're, now, we're, now, we're now in three different buildings now, Paul. Oh, are you? Um, wow. Yeah. Um, so, so the customer care team are based in a place called Kelf and different other parts. Now, can um, I – sorry. Can I, 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 I'm sorry to break into your train of thought, but that raises a really interesting – thing right now that you're spread over multiple buildings have you found it harder to liaise with the customer uh, you know support team because before they were literally sitting next door and you know every time they came in for a coffee you you would be talking to them is that distance creating a barrier um a little bit Uh i would um obviously we we get um the weekly feedback sheet uh you know there's there's a fair few people on customer care who will email me and I'll email them and we'll be in the group chat and all that sort of yeah. stuff. In. Um, you don't, I'm not as close to the cold face as I used to be, mm-hmm. admittedly. Um, but then, you know, we've got the customer care office in Brisbane and the customer care office in Atlanta. So mm. you're always going to be distributed in one way or another. All mm-hmm. you can do is get the best feedback loops, which sounds incredibly business friendly, but it's true. Um, get, get the best way of gathering feedback um, as much as possible. I think the issue is um, when someone calls customer care, that is not a typical user. Yeah, I know. So, so what, what, where my focus is, is the people who, you know, what, what are people doing before they get to customer care? Mm. Uh, And then, you know, if there's, Specific instances of customer care, speaking to someone um, who are who are buying their first sex toy. That's mm. that's useful stuff to me. Mm. Um, but it's really when people have thought thought about buying for the first time. What do they type into Google? What when they land on Love Honey? What is their first impression? Um, is this a site for people like them? And one thing that I'm really keen on at the moment is. The idea of um, what we call hyper-normalization, which I think is named after a film, um, that we need to make these things look as normal as possible. Mm. So one thing that we're working on is um, if you're viewing a particular product, we'll tell you how many other people viewed that product in the last 24 hours. Yeah. Um, if, you, if you go through the reviews, all our reviews, they're from real people, and it will tell you a little bit about that person. Ah. Uh, so they're a married woman, you know, mid forties, yeah, over twenty years, that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's good. That's that's so much more useful to people um, yeah. than if it's you know some eighteen year old boy. Yeah, um, and so and so yeah, it, we have to make this stuff not look like it's for weirdos because mm. it's not. Everyone does it. Um, and so you have to kind of just normalize the damn thing. Mm. And I think, I think sometimes we go, we go too far the wrong way um, in that we can sometimes just burp out products on a page without any form of context or explanation. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if, you, if you're looking at a particular vibrator, we'll say, well, we also recommend you buy this lubricant and this cleaner and you'll want this storage and so on and so forth. And we don't particularly explain why. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we all know why, because, you know, if you haven't got a storage bag, it will gather, you know, the silicon will get dusty and it yeah. will be very pleasant for you and that sort of stuff. And so that's something that, that I'm trying to work on is, is a way of intelligently, programmatically giving people context to what we're recommending them. Um, so it's, I mean, you seem to have a very intuitive grasp of, of 
what's going on with your customers now the last time i interacted with you which was admittedly probably almost eight years ago yeah. uh, if you think of it that way you know you were very heavy on multivariant testing and analytics and from the sounds of what you were saying about spreadsheets you still very much are yeah but it sounds like that's very much being balanced by something else. It's, it, 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 uh, is it usability testing that you're doing regularly? Do you actually get to sit uh, down? Use, uh, so usability testing, I'm not sure if I actually believe in anymore. Oh, interesting. Uh, because I've had a lot of usability consultants march through these doors um, and user experience consultants march through these doors. Um, and proclaim all these things that we end up testing and don't make a jolly bit of difference. Mm. Um, I like um, the idea of a properly spec out test. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, I, I often talk about finger painting, um, where you can just go in and change a bunch of stuff for the sake of it to see what the di- what difference it makes. Yeah. Um, I think back in the day, I was probably guilty of that. Um, but now it has to be right. So our user research says that um, people uh, have people are anxious. Um, people want to find a good thing, a low value, and they want to check out as quickly as possible. Yeah. Right. So that that is that is our hypothesis. Or our hypothesis is right. So we have various steps in the process that are slowing people down. Yeah. Um, so right. So what can we do about that? Mm-hmm. Right, so if someone can be introduced to buy it now button, mm-hmm. for example, now that that Amazon patent has uh, expired, can we can we <laughs> can we do the buy it now button on product pages? Um, and so that's something I've been testing in Australia, um, and yes, it works quite dramatically, but it only works for new visitors. Right, okay, because it's them, it's those new visitors, their first visit, anxious, want to buy something quickly, don't have time to research click that button. Um, and so, and then, then you have to think about the iterative side of it. So, right, uh, if people have done that, right, how can I make it even better for them? Um, and so every, uh, we work with a company called Lean Convert, who are ex, a bunch of ex-maximizer guys. Mm-hmm. Um, we worked with, uh, I think, three, four years now, um, uh, who essentially do our kind of back-end development or, or front-end development for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whenever we come to them with a test that we want to do, they whack a document in front of you saying, right, fill this out. Uh, <laughs> and it's this, right, what is your hypothesis? Yeah. What are, what are the metrics that you are trying to change? Yeah. Why do you believe that you will change these metrics? Mm-hmm. How, long do, how long do you think you're going to be running this test for? And then you've got a whole debrief section afterwards saying, right, did these metrics actually change? Mm-hmm. Were there any segments within those metrics that had a higher confidence for that change? Mm-hmm. But there's that segment there or that segment there. It might be demographic. It might be geographic. Could be anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, right. So, what is the next iteration? And so, it's it's boring paperwork, but you get so much out more out of your testing yeah. than literally just flying in and changing a bunch of stuff. Yeah, because you've got a hunch. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I 100% agree with that. I absolutely see where you're coming from. And that, that, that loop of, of, you know, uh, identify a problem, form a hypothesis about potential solutions, test those solutions, you know, uh, at a small scale, iterate, improve, then push live yeah. and then continue to monitor. Absolutely, totally agree with. What I'm quite interested in is, is the start of that, right? at the very okay. beginning of that is the identify a problem. Now, obviously yeah. your analytics to some degree are helping identify a problem, but you gave an example there about how you want somebody, you know, users want to do this very fast, right? Users want to do dot, dot, dot. It doesn't really matter what that well, identifying what it is that users want to do. Are you doing ongoing user research there or are you, what are you relying on to come to that conclusion? Well, analytics will always come first. Yeah. Um, so obviously you're looking at your shopping funnel and your checkout funnel mm-hmm. to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a system called Session Cam, which yeah. is a session recording system. Mm-hmm. And it's got a level of intelligence in it that says, right, um, people with these uh, characteristics um, don't have the same 
as the basket raters, the rest of your population. Mm. Um, and so that will then let us know where to start digging, mm-hmm. essentially. So from there, we'll then uh, construct some other metrics um, that will then give us indicators of what might be the problem. So it could be dwell time on the page. It could be, you know, what have they highlighted? It could be all sorts of things. Have they looked at a secondary image? Have they read a review? Have they watched a video? What else, what else have they looked at? Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, I can then go to the UX department and say, okay, I think we have an issue here. I've got a very good example of this, actually. Um, for our Spanish website, um, we have a lot of websites now, Paul. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> when I started, it was just one. Now it's nine. Oh, there you um, go. There we go. Uh, so for our Spanish website, um, I noticed that there was a significant drop-off on the shipping address page of our checkout. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's just from GA funnels. Mm. G, actually, GA enhanced e-commerce. Mm. Um, so, so I can see right on the shipping address page, um, there was people are dropping off here. So, right. So I can do some uh, classic Formissimo style, uh, uh, click tracking. So, right. Which, which fields did they drop out on? Let's find that one first. Um, right. Which fields are they dwelling on the most? Let's find that. And it was the, um, we have a, a postcode lookup, uh, uh, address lookup mm-hmm. um, field, and so right, I've got a problem there. And then, so what I could see is then people um, in my session recording what people were actually kind of looking for. Yeah. A lot of it is a lot of it is masked out for, for privacy. Yes, of course. But, but I can see like the first the first few things that they're typing and, and what gets returned. And what I noticed is that they were busy typing in their address, and what was being returned from the address lookup was a bunch of dresses in California. Ah. Spanish. Yeah. And so we can then go and say, right, ah, okay. Somewhere in this, someone hasn't set the lookup country to Spain. Yeah. They've set it to global. Yeah. And so, right. And so then I can say, right, okay, well, let's test if we change that to, to, to purely look up Spanish addresses, what happens? And unsurprisingly, it works massively. <laughs> I mean, that's a good example, mine, of, of the caution that you've had to adopt these days because you know it would be very tempting to go oh look that's the problem fix without actually testing but i'm imagining that that's come back to bite you at some point in the past yeah you can you can always just make things live without testing them um so for example uh videos um so we did a uh a change to our product page layout pdp layout um that uh, elevated the position of videos um, we, we tested it in the UK. It was great. Uh, and then we applied that globally. And in the US, it was a disaster. Oh, crikey. Um, and so we ended up test, having to retest it in the US. Um, and it seemed that because all our videos are done with our, one of our presenters, mostly Annabelle, who has a cut glass received English accent, right. um, it wasn't working in the US audience. It was working fine in Australia, where they don't mind such things, but in the US they do. Mm. Um, so yeah, you, you you can't just think about one site anymore. Even yeah. in the US, you can't even consider the US like one territory. It's lots of different territories munched together under one country. Yeah, uh, with, with very different uh, opinions of things. Um, that that's probably the biggest thing I've learned now. Is mm-hmm. previously I I had to think small, and I can't think small anymore. Mm. Uh, I have, you know, when I'm thinking about Canada, there's obviously you've got the, the you know, Quebec as a separate issue, but, but the experience of someone in Vancouver will be very different to the experience of someone in Toronto, mm. purely because of, of shipping times and packs. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's a lot to think about. Mm. And, and if you're just busy spending all your time on your UK site, you're not, you're not getting it right. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, Matt, that was absolutely fascinating. I'm not sure how much we actually spoke about culture. But... <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Um, but... in, in terms of um, the, the big thing that the big thing that we haven't covered in in Love Honey is our culture, and mm. so it's ingrained. But literally, there are there are um, little cards for every staff member that says, "You know, these are our core beliefs." So mm. Things like go the extra inch, believe in what you do, don't judge others. If it makes someone happy. Um, uh, and, and it doesn't hurt anyone else, you should support it. There's, mm. there's all sorts of things like that. And then actually, that, those become our objectives. Mm. And so 
when we're getting performance reviews every half year, it says, right, you know, how much do you live by the Love Honey values? And they're literally listed. And you have, to say, you, you have to say how you have lived by those values. That's good. It's enforced. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, that's that's really good. I mean, there, there uh, we really ought to wrap it up, but there is one more question related <laughs> to that. Is I remember back in your Wiltshire Farm Foods days, one of the things you said to me once is when you first joined the company, you had to do the customer support for a bit, yeah, right? Yeah. Do you do anything like that at Love Honey? Because that always struck me as a really good idea that everyone in the company, whether you work in accounts or legal, had to go through this process of interacting with the customer. It is, it is exactly the same at Love Honey. Yeah. Um, I have done my week on customer service. It gives me nightmares. Um, <laughs> because mostly you're on live chat, and so there is a level of anonymity Yeah. Um, when, when someone's you know, chatting to an agent on live chat and they will ask you the weirdest stuff. I was asked what I would take to a lesbian sex party. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, haven't, I haven't been to many lesbian sex parties before. No, um, no, that yeah, doesn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been asked to measure certain uh, <laughs> ornaments. Uh, yes, yes. But you, you have to, you have to, because then you get an idea of, right, not just, oh, there's some people who, you know, want to have a bit of a joke, but this 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 isn't it's not life or death but it's it's incredibly emotive for some people yeah it, they are essentially um hanging their their happiness off this thing they're going to buy yeah yeah and so you know you, both your heart goes out for them and you you really just want to help them find the right thing i mean yeah. that's part of our returns policy mm. so, so if, if um when you buy something if you if you find it in account your your product is guaranteed for a year even you know even if you've used it don't worry about keeping your packaging even if you've used it don't care about the packaging um if you don't get on with it even for a year you can send it back and i i say that in in workshops i run because i think you know that's about objection handling isn't it oh i don't know whether i'll like this well you can try it you can try it and see and the reaction i always get when i say your return policy is because people think you're going to resell it um, you know, the, uh, and, uh, then, then you can tell them about our recycling policy. And now, think, you know, think literally vibrators go off to a, an electronics recycling facility in Kent right. where they will be turned into toasters and bilbo's <laughs> turned into tires and, and all sorts of things. Oh, that's great. But instantly, <laughs> once people get over that, uh, it's oh, wow, that's really yeah. that's a change, you know, that is a big change thing you know when you think well, i can i can just buy it if i don't like it i can send it back Absolutely. you know that's incredibly liberating and that's 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 pure that off yeah that's, yeah and and so and so yeah that's you know that's again one of the sites we looked at when we're thinking about, you know how how do you sell sex toys like a customer leading company mm. so you look at that you look at john lewis mm. you look at all these companies who who put the customer's needs Mm. and ultimately that helps your business needs and you think well if we if you've got a year's return policy won't people use it as a sex toy lending library mm-hmm. and it's like well there is a there is a few who will and you know we'll we'll talk to them after a while but the vast majority I mean, frankly our returns policy could be five years because the vast majority mm. of returns happen happen within two weeks mm. because you either get on with it or you don't yeah and, and so and the benefits, you know, the amount of additional sales that you get from providing people with that safety net outweighs the, the potential cost to the company. So it, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Matt. I mean, that, oh, thank you, Paul. It, it's an absolutely um, fascinating area. And um, uh, I never get bored of, of uh, hearing your <laughs> stories about it, really. Long may you stay there and keep me entertained. Oh, thank you. I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> So what did you think of that one, uh, Marcus? Of course, you've heard a lot of it before. You've known Matt as long as I have. I have indeed. Um, always great to hear, hear what he has to say. He has to be, even more than Chris Scott, the, the Google Analytics maestro. Oh, yeah. yeah, Unbelievable. Um, but, but more importantly than that, they have the best mantra ever. Going the extra inch just made me laugh out loud. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it did me as well. It's, Brilliant. It, 
He's, I just think it, I, I also like the idea of it. It's like extreme user experience, isn't it? It's one of the most extreme positions you can ask people to, to visit a website over. I can, you know, I'm struggling to think of examples where there's more baggage associated with it. Yeah, people but, going going in with so many potential hang-ups. Mm. Uh, interesting what he was saying about the fact that he used to just be able to kind of practice, I'll try that, I'll just yeah. slap that out there and see if that works. And now he's got the kind of much more Amazon-like, mm. um, we will test this for six months uh, on three people uh, and mm. then see what happens, um, which must be a little bit frustrating for him. But then he's got a whole team of people to do that for him, so... So kind of less so. I think and also, it, he's sorry. not testing. He, he's not having to test for six months now because of the, mm. the, the obscene levels of traffic he's dealing with. You know, mm. so he, he can do multivariance testing, I imagine, quite quickly. But yeah, everything has to be a lot more considered. He wasn't very complimentary about usability consultants, was he? Did you no, notice that? He wasn't. Um, that's, usability testing in general is getting a bit of a kind of um, a bad kind of rap at the moment i oh, think is it and well you've, even you i mean I'm, I'm preempting what you're going to say about a full story but you kind of like say you know people in usability testing um kind of lab situations will always be they'll they'll react in ways unlike mm. they would at home mm. um and yeah. I, I, somebody posted um a really interesting uh, article um i should have i should have their name my apologies um on by will slack channel uh, uh, today about about how people like you and I who are facilitating these sessions completely bias people. And it's like, mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so, but yeah, just, just that kind of, that idea that kind of usability testing doesn't really work for him was kind of interesting and underlined that a bit, really. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, I, I certainly don't feel as strongly as, as Matt does over it. I, I see it as being a part of the mix um, you know, I think there are certain problems where you can't just resolve them by looking at numbers. Sometimes you need to understand the motivations behind that. And I think sometimes usability testing can help with that. Um, but it, it's certainly now just one tool about among many as our tools have become more sophisticated. So, yeah. you know, which is I fair think, enough. I think, I mean, we've, we've always said in the past, you know, we, you, you can't help but being biased. Just mm. by asking a question in a deadpan voice, the question, mm. the words in the question will probably bias what people think. You, you know, you ask people, you know, or you say to people, this isn't a test, but they're just going test, test in their mind. Yeah. Uh, so things like that. Mm. Um, it's this idea that we kind of in the past, used to, even knowing we were kind of biased about something going, well, we learned something. Mm. But I think what the question, what people are starting to question now is, is that thing that you learnt correct? And mm. I still don't know the answer to that. I'm not sure. The, the, and yes, but this is the, this is where you get into those those dangerous ground for me anyway. Because you know when you what happens is is somebody starts to you know they discover usability testing, they start to learn more about it, they they get really enthusiastic, they use it a lot. Then they start to find its shortcomings and then they start talking publicly about, oh, well, actually, usability <laughs> testing isn't that good, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and then what they do is they put off the next generation of people that maybe haven't started doing it, you know, and they go, well, perhaps I shouldn't bother doing usability testing. And so I actually, you know, yes, usability testing is not perfect. Yes, it has its shortcomings. Yes, you need to take what you learn with a pinch of salt, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It doesn't mean, because just the action of getting in front of users, seeing real people is really important. And that, if you notice Mm. in the interview with Matt, I came back to that point of, well, you know, when do you actually ever spend time with users? I asked it more subtly than that because I'm nice. Um, (laughs) And and it became very obvious that actually Matt is spending time with users. He might not be doing usability testing with them, but he's still getting to know them and to understand them and empathize with them and all of those kinds of things. So, you know, there are, there are different ways of doing it. Yeah. But you're right. It is just one tool of many. And that does bring us, as you say, nicely onto full story. There is another tool um, in your arsenal 
And I was talking last week, wasn't I, about how session recorders kind of fit somewhere in between usability testing and, and analytics because they, you know, enable you to observe people without them realizing it, which means they act more naturally. But actually what I want to talk about today is that actually full story can be very useful in dealing with internal stakeholders as well when you're trying to convince colleagues that they need to make improvements to their websites, um, it can be quite difficult sometimes. And there are those people that respond, you know, to stats and to numbers and to data and that kind of thing. And then there are those people that respond to the seeing a user struggling with a particular pro uh, problem. Um, and, and actually that's what I, one of the things I like about full story is it actually kind of gives something to both of those groups. It's actually a great tool for winning colleagues over. Um, for those that, you know, are more empathetic, you can, you can show them videos of users struggling. You can see them rage clicking. You can see them getting frustrated as they try and navigate around the site. Um, but it's also got all of that, that numbers and the statistical data and the, the, you know, the, the, you know, the huge number of people that you couldn't do usability testing around so in many ways it is for yeah. me that kind of sweet spot between analytics and usability testing it doesn't replace either but it certainly reinforces both um, so you can sign up and get a month of free for that of their pro account no need to enter a credit card um, so they're not going to kind of tie you in or anything like that just give it a go for a month see how you get on if you get to the end of the month and want to continue using it um, but can't quite justify the fee you can get up to a thousand sessions per month absolutely free um, but it's well worth the money i tell you you can find that by going to fullstory.com forward slash boag Okay, Marcus, do you want to finish off with a joke? I do. I have to ask better quality jokes on the Boag World joke channel, please. I've had to we ought to, we ought to say, if you want to join the Slack channel just to provide Marcus with jokes. <laughs> Although, I mean, we've, we've been, you know, we've mentioned it several times in this podcast. You can go to uh, boagworld.com forward slash slacking to join up. Sorry, you, Marcus. That's okay. Um, I, I'm so I've just had to dig out an old classic Tommy Cooper. Ah, good stuff. <clears throat> I backed a horse last week at ten to one, but it came in at quarter past four. <laughs> <laughs> so send me more if you want better than that. Send me more jokes. I Simple know as that. you. You can also email Marcus jokes at you Marcus at all right. Well, thank you very much, Marcus, for, for joining us um, in your evening. We're recording mm -hmm. in an evening press change. You know, um, I know it's past your bedtime, so it is much appreciated. And thank you, dear listener, for enduring um, lots of talk about vibrators and dildos. <laughs> it's been an interesting show. And we'll, uh, normal service will be resumed next week. Thanks for listening. I'm